Good morning again. I want to just uh, recognize the fact that Kevin Kozlowski and his wife and children are joining us this morning. Kevin is the senior pastor at Faith Pres down the road. I know they were on vacation this week with spring break, and uh, it's great to have you with us. Kevin was one of the pastors that joined us from the area um, for our Good Friday service um, on Friday. Just uh, as I've gotten to know some of these um, pastors in the area, it's been such a wonderful encouragement to to see our solidarity in the gospel and the fact that we can partner with each other, um, if only by prayer, but certainly in expressions like the Good Friday service um, because of our our, uh, like-mindedness in the gospel. So we partner with you, we pray for you, um, and for Faith Prez, for the God's blessing on on your church. So good to have you with us. Um, Usually, we participate um, in the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. Um, And maybe you noticed in the bulletin, or maybe you looked up there and you don't see any communion plates. Um, So as I was wrestling with this text this week, Next, I was originally going to take it in two parts because there's a lot in here, and you'll see that in just a minute. Um, But it really hangs together, and I think we need to take it as a unit, which means that next week is going to be Luke 22, which is the Last Supper. Um, And so it seemed appropriate to go ahead and just push um, the Lord's Supper ahead a week, which will coincide well with um, communion to follow. So that also gives us a little bit more time <laughs> this week to unpack a pretty full and dense section here. So I hope that you um, are caffeinated and you're ready to walk through Luke 21. Um, it's sobering but very encouraging stuff and stuff that we really need to attend to carefully, um, the words of our Lord Jesus. So um, the words, the end. We see those words a fair amount in our lives. We see them at the end of the books that we read, particularly fiction books, right? The end. We see them at the end of movies that we watch. Um, And you know what? There's a lot of the end of the world stuff as well that's out there that maybe doesn't strike us with the same sort of um, (laughs) good feelings or maybe we're sad that it's over or whatever when we see that the end at the end of a book that we love or a movie that we love. Um, When we hear of the end of the world, and, and actually there's plenty of that in the movies, sometimes we think of a lot of craziness. We think sandwich boards, you know, in the city. Usually that's where you see those, at least in greater frequency. Um, maybe billboards as you drive. Uh, maybe there's some people out there that resemble Chicken Little in the way that they talk about the end. There's doomsayers. Um, what do you make of all of that? What's your kind of natural reaction to that kind of talk out there in our culture, whether it's from church-type people or, you know, political, economic people, or whatever. Well, maybe in the first case, it's amazing, and I haven't seen very many of them, but there's a lot of end of the world, end of time, sort of, uh, there's a whole genre of movies, and a lot of them in the last few years. Um, Have you noticed this? There's a lot of movies this way. There's these catastrophic events, and the end of the world as we know it happens, and then somebody has to come in and save the day and rescue the human race, and blah, blah, blah. So we see that kind of thing. Maybe we like to watch those things, but mainly we relegate the end of the world to fiction, science, sci-fi films, etc. You know, as far as the sandwich boards go, you might be tempted to distance yourself from people like that because you don't want to be associated with the nutcases and the crazies. Hey, I've certainly experienced this. I have an aversion to an association with end times kookiness and doomsayers. Any of you resonate with that? You don't have to raise your hands. Because, see, I don't want to overreact. I don't want to be an alarmist. I don't want to be viewed as such because I don't want to be a fool. And I don't want to appear 
the fool. Now, some of that is reasonable, okay, because some of the reaction and some of the, the hype can be like Chicken Little. Some of that can be dangerous. Some of that kind of aversion can be dangerous. Would I have written off Noah? Would you have written off Noah? We don't want to overswing. If you're anything like me, we don't want to overswing. History is not an endless cycle. It's going somewhere. Now, some of you may resonate with kind of my own personal issues and idiosyncrasies when it comes to these things. Some of you might be on the other side of the spectrum. You know, you might really like to piece together things and figure out, you know, who might be the Antichrist and, and you're mapping out your end times chart and putting the pieces together. And yet sometimes folks in that boat are not necessarily the ones who are laying down their lives in loving service and gracious hospitality and bold witness to their neighbors and coworkers and family members. Maybe that's an exaggeration for the sake of the point, but sometimes churches get caught up and they are so focused on, on the details and the maps and the charts that they just seem to lose focus as far as the mission that Jesus has given us in this world. And that's certainly not where Jesus' end times instruction leads us. So we need some help. We need to hear from Jesus on these things. And we need to listen. There's a lot in here, so we're going to need to pay careful attention. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we're going to dive in to Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through the end of the chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even as we've sung, the return of your Son to the earth that we know will take place, that can be a glorious day, not a terrible, threatening, fearful day, only because of his, the purpose of his first coming, because he took on flesh and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and suffered and died for us and took our sin, the punishment for our sin, paying that penalty on the cross in our place and rising again, vindicating every claim only because of your grace to us in Christ, only because of that mercy extended on account of the cross can we be reconciled to you? Can we have any shred of confidence to stand before the king of the universe against whom we have all rebelled and have peace and reconciliation and confidence at your coming? So we praise you and we thank you for the gospel that makes it possible for us to sing these songs about your return and to sing them with hearts that eagerly await that day. And Lord, there's also dynamics where it's so easy for us to just live with our heads down and go on business as usual and not have an eternal perspective, not have any thought to the fact that history is moving toward your intended consummation. And that should affect the way that we live day in and day out. And we pray that you would please awaken us and cause us to be vigilant and alert and awake, not wasting our lives, but seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, fixing our eyes on Jesus and running the race that's set before us. We need grace for that, Lord, to be ready to be vigilant, to be awake and alert and not get lulled to sleep by the things of this world, the, the promises of this world, the satisfactions of this world. So where we need to be awakened, we pray that you would do that as well for us. So help us as we study your word. Teach us, shape us, change us. Open our eyes to see what we should see by your spirit. We pray it for the glory of Christ and in his name, amen. If it's helpful, there's a little um, insert in your bulletin that has the uh, outline that you can follow along as we walk through this text. Um, 
And I'm going to read the sections rather than reading it all here at the front end and then walking through it. I'm going to just read it piece by piece as we walk through it. So first, the end is coming. This is very clear from Jesus' words here. We need to listen to him. We need to take this message to heart. We can't let cultural fears, you know, like the stuff I mentioned a minute ago, or any kind of craziness that might be out there. We can't let those things dictate our fears or our responses. Okay, We can't let cultural indifference or cultural scoffing dampen our sense of need for alert readiness that Jesus calls for here. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny that our world is, on the one hand, full of apocalyptic fears, okay, which is why there's so many movies like this with end-of-the-world plot lines. That's the reason why they're made. That's the reason why they sell. It's because they are the projected fears, the fears writ large of lots and lots of people. If they weren't, nobody would make them. If they weren't, nobody would go and watch them. And yet, if you actually start to believe that the end is coming and tell people that you need to be ready for Judgment Day, lots of people are going to write you off as a nutcase. Well, a lot of people wrote Jesus and Paul off as nutcases as well. So we're in good company. Okay, so what should we believe about the end? What, when is it coming? How will we know? The good news is that Jesus has spoken on the matter. What he says here is probably not going to address all of our questions, okay, but we're not left in the dark. So we need to listen and let his word shape us rather than the words and the values of our world. So first, preparation for the end. Um, we're going to start in verse 5 and read through verse 19. Okay, so while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He said, see to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things... They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up in your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death." And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. There's a lot in there. Preparation for the end. Okay, so first a little orientation here, verses 5 to 7. Jesus mentions the temple and its destruction, which did happen in history in 70 AD. Okay, so the disciples ask, when but they ask in a way that signals that they see this as associated with the end. And so Jesus is, is going to actually separate those two things in his answer here for carefully um, following what he says. He's going to separate the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, and the obstinate unbelief that was present there that's being judged. He's going to separate that from the end of the world and the judgment on the world because of the obstinate unbelief here in the world. So what it is, if, if you need to hear this as far as orientation to understand this passage, because he, he moves from one to the next and sometimes a little bit back and forth, the judgment and end of Jerusalem or the temple in AD 70 is actually a type. It's actually a preview of the judgment and the end of the rebellious world. Okay. So they are connected, and yet they're separate. So in that light, preparation for one is not unlike preparation for the other, though there are some parts in Jesus' um, words here that are unique to one or the other. We'll see that as we go along. 
So if we're prepared for the end, we need to know what to expect. Okay, so these guys see this beautiful temple and Jesus comes out and says, look, there's a day coming when not one stone will be left on another. It's hard for us to imagine this, but Jesus is basically predicting the destruction of, of something that today, if it were still standing, would be one of the few wonders of the world. You know, seven wonders of the world. This would be one of them. It's well attested in history that there were white marble stones, gold plates. I mean, this thing just shone on the top of the hill in an amazing way. The facade had these gold plates on it. Some of those stones, there are engineers today that just can't quite understand how with the technology of the time they, they hoisted these stones up into place. Okay, There's evidence that some of them could have been 75 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. 75 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide of marble, white marble. Okay? If you go to Israel today, you take the Western Wall tunnel tour. Um, I saw one of these stones. This isn't as big as some of them were. But there's a stone there that's 45 feet long by 12 by 12, 12 feet, not inches. They estimate it's like 570 tons. Okay? So you can imagine that for these people... For the disciples, the people that are following Jesus, the Jews, this is the center of the universe for them. Okay, so this is the center of worship of God. And so the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, very much seems like the end of the world to them. Okay, so they are connected in their minds. So they say, when's this going to be? What will be the sign? And so he warns them. Don't be misled. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, the time is near. And there is historical evidence that just this happened in the 60s AD, prior to the destruction. Okay? There were these revolutionaries. One commentator summarized messianic leaders recruited revolutionary forces against Rome. Okay? So, so this very stuff happened prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. But... This is also true of the end when, prior to Jesus' second coming. Okay, So in Matthew 24, parallel account to this one, listen. You don't have to take the time to turn there, but just listen here. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Okay, so he's saying, don't listen to them. It could get so bad where people are just so disoriented that they could fall prey to these temptations, whether that be prior to the destruction of Jerusalem or prior to the end. And so we actually need this. Even if we don't feel the need of it right now, we need these warnings. So don't go after them. And don't be terrified. (laughs) Pretty scary stuff he's talking about here, but he says there in verse 9, don't be terrified. Know what to expect. These things must take place first, like he says there in verse 9. But... Even though though these things are scary, even though they seem cataclysmic, the end doesn't follow immediately. You need to know that so that you don't overreact, so that you don't give way to fear, as if, ah, what's happening? Okay? And it's going to get worse. Look at verses 10 to 11. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Okay? We need to know this. We need Jesus to set our expectations. There are a lot of things that are actually worse than a burst housing bubble or economic woes in America. We need Jesus to shape our categories. Okay? But before all these things, before these things escalate toward the end, verse 12. We need to know what to expect. We should be prepared to suffer. Certainly the disciples needed to, and we do as well, even in the West. So before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors. Think about the book of Acts. 
Think about how this was fulfilled. All for my name's sake. It's going to lead to an opportunity. An opportunity for your testimony, which certainly happened as we see Luke's sequel in Acts, these very things being fulfilled. So make up your minds ahead of time not to prepare ahead of time to defend yourselves. Because what you'd be doing if you did that is you would, you would be relying on yourself, taking matters into your own hands as if a stunning defense would deliver you. Don't do that. Trust me. Trust me. I will give you the words that you need in that situation if it arises. Guess what? Do you want proof that this can happen? Stephen. This is exactly what happened with Stephen. Stephen. And the one who says, I will give you utterance and wisdom is Jesus, the one who just has silenced all of his detractors in chapters 19 and 20. I mean, it's really amazing that he says, I will give you. (laughs) He's going to die and rise and ascend, but I'm going to give you. So this is the sovereign suffering servant who's going to ascend to the Father's right hand and help his people. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay? This is not something where I can claim this promise for sermon preparation, unfortunately. Okay? And you shouldn't try to claim it for your Sunday school lesson either. This is very specific to situations of suffering when when you are delivered up. And you know what? Again, this is, maybe we hold it out at arm's length because, oh, that happened, that happened in other centuries or it happens in other places of the world. Well, yes, it does happen in other places of the world. And it certainly could in our lifetime even here as well. Okay, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Okay, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Oh, how our brothers and sisters know this who have come from radical Muslim and Hindu backgrounds. This stuff is happening to them around the world right now. And it can even happen in milder forms in our culture, in our families. Someone turns to Christ and they are mocked and scoffed and rejected and marginalized within their family. We shouldn't be surprised by those things. Okay, we should expect those things. This is sobering stuff. We need to know it ahead of time so that we're not thrown off when it comes. He says, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. Okay, so not all will be put to death, but some will. Not all will be betrayed by family, but some will. Not all will be delivered to the authorities, but some will. And we all must count the cost. Okay, we should be reminded of Jesus' word back in, in chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What that means is not a, a, an emotional loathing or hating. It means you deny the impulse to let anyone else be your Lord or Master. Yes, even your own life, okay? Jesus is Lord. So no one and no thing can take that place of priority ahead of him as the king and the master. So we need to count the cost. We need to be prepared to suffer. We need Jesus to set and shape our expectations, okay? But thankfully, not all of what we should expect is negative and threatening. We also need to know the promises. And there are several, and they are sweet. Look at the promises. First, Verse 15, we mentioned it already. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand. I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Stephen, again, beautiful example of this. But do you hear the echoes of something from the Old Testament in this section? I will give you utterance and wisdom. Moses. Remember? I'll be with your mouth. God himself says, I will give you words. But, 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 trust me, Moses. And here's Jesus echoing the words of God in the way that he speaks to his disciples. So that is a sweet promise with all kinds of deliverance 
overtones from Exodus 4 and beyond. Also, verses 18 and 19, even though it comes in the context of some of you will be put to death, strangely enough, in verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. That's not contradictory. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Okay, this is just another way of saying what Jesus has already said in the book of Luke in chapter 9. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. The only thing you do on a cross is die. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. So don't try to save your life. Some of you, they will put to death, but trust me, ultimately not a hair on your head will perish. You will be safe in my hands. You'll have the promise of the resurrection. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more to do, more that they can do. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. It's a similar logic when Jesus, you know, um, was saying to um, uh, Martha in John 11, remember he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It's the same thing here. Some of you, they will put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. So this is sweet promise, strong promise for very hard times. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem. And the destruction of Jerusalem is a preview. It's a paradigm of the end of the world. So what he says to them is also then, by extension, applicable to us as disciples who await his return in the end of all things. Okay? So that's the beginning of preparation that we need. Now let's look at this preview of the end. Remember the context here. Um, Flip back to Luke 19. You need to be reminded. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Luke because of the um, Easter season. Um, but remember what Jesus said back in Luke 19, 41 to 46. Remember, triumphal entry. He approaches Jerusalem. He sees the city and he weeps over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, Jerusalem, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And then what did he do? He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling because they had turned the, this house of prayer into a den of thieves, okay, a robber's den. So the temple leaders, as Jesus has um, come into Jerusalem, shaken things up with his cleansing of the temple, he's teaching in the temple, they can't corner him in debate, they're seeking to destroy him, the people are hanging on his words, they try to discredit him, it doesn't work, and it's in that context that he says this. Okay, some were talking about the temple, oh, it's so beautiful, we do this, you know, um, if, if some, some out-of-town guest comes in and you drive past um, Winneter or something like that, you, oh, look at this, look at, I mean, they're just doing this. It's an impressive structure. And he turns their attention and says, listen, there is coming a day when not one stone will be left upon another. And so they are shocked. When? What will be the sign? So now in verses 20 to 24, Jesus is going to predict and speak directly to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay? So let's, let's read verses 20 to 24 now so that we see this preview of the end in the end of Jerusalem and the temple that took place in AD 70. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her desolation is near. Not general global desolation, but her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance. That's echoing divine judgment. Okay, That's language of divine judgment. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. 
Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what was coming on Jerusalem was a result of their rejection of the Messiah, the corruption in the temple, so these are days of vengeance so that what was written would be fulfilled, wrath to this people. But Jesus is speaking to those who have been hanging on his words, those who have been following him. And so he's warning them so that they won't be destroyed, that they can flee from the city when they see this beginning to happen. This is a real warning for them because it happened in the lifetime of many of them. Okay, in fact, I mean, you can read these things in historical accounts. Most of the Christians actually fled the city of Jerusalem to a city called Pella, one of the cities of the Decapolis, south of Galilee. Eusebius is an early Roman historian. He wrote that they fled there. Listen, in his own account, he wrote they fled there in response to an oracle given by Revelation. It could be that he's referring to the very words of Jesus. That that's what they were saying. The disciples, as they saw these signs, they took off. They fled for the hills. And Jesus' words were fulfilled. So Jesus' warning here is directly applicable preparation for them. It's more pattern-like, more preview-like for us. Okay, but so you can see he's going to segue into the end when at the end of verse 24, do you see what it says? Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay? And you can map the book of Acts right into this, where the focus turns away from Jerusalem and the synagogues and starts to reach out to the nations. By and large, Israel is hardened for this time. It's the time of the Gentiles. You can map Romans 11 into this. Okay, where it says, just listen, I'd encourage you to read the whole context later, but in, in Romans 11, 11, it says, so I asked, did they stumble, the Jews hard-heartedly rejecting their Messiah by and large? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then verse 25, it says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so until the time, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So he's giving preparation here, and it's a preview for us, direct preparation for them because the destruction of Jerusalem was coming upon them, preview preparation for us because that destruction is like the final destruction. So the coming of the end, let's look at verses 25 to 28. There will be signs. So until the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled, and then there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Okay, I mean, just think about how people feel and respond in the face of catastrophic natural disaster. Okay, whether it's a tsunami or a great earthquake or a hurricane, this is kind of the mood that Jesus is striking. That's what it's going to be like. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, which is a reference to Daniel 7, with power and great glory. Okay, so here's the coming of the end. We're moving away from just that initial fulfillment in Jerusalem, AD 70. Now we're moving to the end. So how should we respond if we are on earth at this time? Some scary stuff in verses 25 and 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, no longer veiled, no longer meek and mild, riding on the donkey. This is white horse, King Jesus. But verse 28, it's so sweet. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, we've sung of it this morning. To use another hymn, a well-known hymn, It's Well With My Soul, you know that I think it's maybe the last verse. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. We don't have to run for the hills. 
Even so, it's well with my soul. This is going to happen, folks. We oftentimes just tunnel vision. We just kind of run through our day. We don't realize that history is moving indomitably to God's appointed end. And he already told us how it ends. He wins. And so it can be well with our soul. It will be a terrible day. So how can it be well with our souls? Only if you know and have experienced the reality of the other verses of that great hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I won't meet with judgment because Jesus took my just judgment on the cross in his first coming in my place so that I could be reconciled with the Father so that I could have hope of eternal life. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Okay, so verse 28, do you long for that day? We should, I mean, this world is heavy and weary, wearying, you know, just to walk through it. We suffer, we struggle, and you can just get bent over and overwhelmed. Thankfully, the one who's coming on the white horse says, come to me, all you are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And thankfully, he promises that he is returning, and when we see it, we should straighten up. We don't have to be bowed down in shame, even though we may have been shamed and scoffed and mocked. We can lift up our heads because our redemption, our full freedom that the gospel promises us will finally be ours. We, we've begun to experience that freedom. We've been set free from the, the penalty of sin, we're beginning to experience the freedom from the power of sin, but finally we will be fully freed when he returns. So do you long for that day? Like it says in Romans 8, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly we're being renewed day by day because these light momentary afflictions are producing an eternal weight of glory, and we just long for that eternal weight of glory to come and be realized. So how do we wait? How do we do this? We need to be prepared. What is that preparation? What does that waiting look like? We'll look at the preparation for the end that Jesus gives us in verses 29 to 36. <clears throat> First, we need to live with eyes open. Okay, verses 29 to 31. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Okay? We should see the seeing language. Do you see it there? Behold, that's seeing language. Um, you see the fig tree when it puts forth its leaves, and you know... When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. So fig trees, they knew it well. You don't have to know fig trees to know this dynamic because it happens with our trees as well. They're bare in the winter. They are clear signs of the changing of the seasons when they start shooting, you know, shoots and leaves. It's obvious. If you have eyes to see, it's obvious. Spring, summer's coming so also in the spiritual sense. Don't blindly go about business as usual. You live in God's world. He's bringing his kingdom on his timeline. So when you see his signs that he has given you, pay attention and be ready. Keep your eyes open. Look at verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Okay, there's a lot of ink spilled on this verse what is he talking about? This generation will not pass away? How's that possible? I mean, we know a generation is what, about 20 years-ish? I don't know. What's an official generation? Um, that 40? Thank you. Okay. Um, so 40 years. Okay. How's that possible? Jesus hasn't come yet. There's a lot of ink spilled, like I said. I'm not going to bore you with all the options, but I think... It's actually a relatively simple, clear point. In, in Luke 16, 8, remember that parable there? Why don't you flip back there and see this? 
Luke 16, 8. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own, in the NAS it says kind, in the ESV it says generation, than the sons of light. What does that mean? Generation, not in the 40 years sense, but in the sense of a certain kind of person. Okay? So they're sons of light and they're sons of darkness, sons of this age. So this unrighteous manager is acting shrewdly. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind, people who don't believe the gospel but are walking in darkness. It's a certain kind of person. Certainly, those kinds of people will persist until the end. In other words, you're going to face opposition until Jesus returns. You see that? Truly, I say to you, this generation, the sinful, opposing the people of God generation, that kind of people, won't pass away until all things take place. So don't think that in the future it's going to get easier. It's going to be a struggle until Jesus returns. The Old Testament uses this term in the same way. In, in, Proverbs, or in Psalms, Psalm 12, um, it says, You, Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. <laughs> if you're only talking 40 years, how is it possible to be um, preserved from a generation forever? No, it's a certain kind of people. So the next verse says, The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Okay, so the point is, heads up, eyes open. Let my words set your expectations. You're going to have trouble until the very end. This generation that opposes the purposes of God, remember, he's speaking to the crowds that have come down with him from Galilee, and they're hanging on his words. The opposition has been met in Jerusalem, in the temple. So these people actually are disciples, and he's saying, you've got to let me calibrate your expectations. Okay, these folks that oppose the purposes of God are going to be present in every generation, in every time, until the end. So be prepared. And then he encourages and strengthens them and us with verse 33. Look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Disciples, then and now, don't doubt for a second what I say. Don't doubt the warnings. And don't doubt the promises. You could be in the midst of some pretty significant suffering and wonder if I'm going to make good on my promises. Listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can bank on them. You can trust them. This stuff is going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. The historicity of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 should serve to underline that truth for us because Jesus' words were proved true. But do you see what's being said here? <laughs> you hear what Jesus just said? He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That is language reserved for Yahweh <laughs> and his word. So in Isaiah 40, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And Jesus says, my words aren't going to pass away. It's a crazy, exalted claim that he makes there. So we better listen. And we need to be prepared. You know, the fads that, that would make a wholehearted embrace or the cultural trends that would make a wholehearted embrace of the linear nature of, of history, the fact that there is a, an end and a judgment to come, your neighbors and friends and coworkers might think you're a nutcase because they've bought into the words and opinions of our day and age. But guess what? All those opinions are not going to endure. They're going to pass away. But Jesus' words are going to endure. They're not going to pass away. So these are the words that we should cling to. These are the words that we should trust. These are the words we should be shaped by. We need to listen and be prepared it will almost certainly come just as he said. And then he continues on how we get yeah. and stay prepared. So hearts guarded. Look at verses 34 and 35. Yeah. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, which is basically like a hangover after carousing. <laughs> not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness, 
and not be weighted down by the worries of life. And that day will not come on you. So be on guard so that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. Okay, so how do we prepare? How are we ready? We need to keep our eyes open, listen to Jesus' words, embrace them. We need to guard our hearts. Okay, verses 34 and 35 here. Um, Remember back in Luke 8? You know, for some of you, the threat of dissipation and drunkenness might not seem like a very significant threat. Although some of you, it would be, and maybe some of you that don't think it would be a threat. Because if things get really hard, you, we could easily turn to the bottle to try to deal with our fears. And some of you do now. Okay? So that's one way that you can get weighted down and not be on guard and you get sluggish and you, rather than being alert and awake, guarding your heart, you get dull and weighted down. But you can also get weighted down by the worries of this life. Okay, remember Luke 8? There's the rocky soil and then there's the thorny soil. The seed fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard and as they go their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. That's a warning I think we need to hear because it's easy for us, for the worries of life, even the good things of life, to choke out our vigilance and our on-guardness as we walk through this life waiting for Jesus' return. So we need this warning. We need to keep our eyes open. We need to guard our hearts and then we need to be prayerfully alert. We need to remain prayerfully alert. Look at verse 36. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Okay? This is actually, you might have wondered why Todd read chapter 18, verse 1, after chapter 17. Well, because in chapter 17, he's warning the disciples to be on the alert and be ready. And the very next thing is this parable that they should always pray and not lose heart. And you know how that parable ends? Remember, it's the parable of this persistent widow. It ends like this. Here's how Jesus applies it. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you, that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? So it's sobering. Chapter 17, you need to be ready. Chapter 18, you have this gift called prayer. You need it. Prayerful vigilance is not a box-checking duty to be ready. It is a desperate necessity for people who know that they're prone to wander who know that the worries and cares of this world can, can weigh us down and choke out the spiritual life in us, who know how deceitful their own hearts are, how deceitful sin is, how subtle and severe spiritual warfare can be, the enemy of our souls. So we need to remain prayerfully alert. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape and to stand. Just real practically, book of the month is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Okay? Even as we considered at our annual meeting back in September, one of the things that um, it's on our hearts as elders' burden for the church is that we grow in our prayerful, authentic, humble dependence on God, that we would operate in his strength, that we would be guided by his spirit. And so I think this is a good call for us to look in and say, am I kind of spiritually sleepy? Have I allowed the world to kind of, I mean, what can you do? You can go home every night after a long day, flip on the tube, and just basically have the, the anesthetic of the world just kind of in you intravenously every night. Worries and cares, you just want to, oh, I need a break. And you just go to sleep, wake up, make the widgets, turn on the TV, repeat. 
That's really dangerous. That's going to set you up for a fall. We need to stay awake and vigilant in this life between now and the coming of Christ. So a praying life, highly recommend it. Beth and I are reading through it right now um, as help toward remaining prayerfully alert. So I know this is a heavy content, heavy message. It's a long section that we just walked through. Um, But one, it's a little bit complicated, and we had to just carefully kind of walk down through it. Um, We need to take these things seriously. We need to listen to the hows. We need to keep our eyes open. We need to guard our hearts. We need to be prayerfully vigilant, alert, and awake. We need to hear Jesus tell us of our need to recognize our need so that we prayerfully, vigilantly, guarding our heart, open eyes, abide in Christ, our Savior and coming King. Let me close with the words of 1 John 2. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. And as we sing in that song of our Redeemer who's going to come and return for us, I hope that we have the heart that Jesus wants to shape in us, this heart that when we hear of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, we straighten up because our redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these warnings. We thank you for these promises. We pray that you would help us to stay awake and alert Help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to live not lulled to sleep by the busyness and the craziness and the things in this world that weigh us down. I pray that we would throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And I pray that we would run with endurance the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who will soon come to take us home. We praise you and thank you for the warnings and promises. Please, Lord, apply them to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.